Are you using IFR? Philips IFR is the gold standard of resting indices and is supported by guidelines and clinical outcome data from over 4,500 patients. Including IFR co-registration in your lab will help you decide not just whether to treat, but where to treat. Learn more at philips.com backslash IFR. You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello, and welcome to the October edition of Heart Sounds. This is the podcast where I walk you through a few of the top stories from the month gone by and let you listen in on some of the audio used by the TCTMD reporters to pull together their stories. Last month was devoted to recapping some of the big news from the European Society of Cardiology Congress in Paris. Big shout out to David Cabadano for helping me with that episode. This month, I'm going to focus on the big trials from TCT 2019, since those happened after the September heart sounds hit the airwaves. Two trials from TCT this year actually had an unexpected second showing at the EACS meeting one week later. EACS is the European Association for Cardiothoracic Surgery, and if you followed these fireworks earlier this month, you'll know the second presentation of the Excel five-year results at EACS was nothing like the presentation at TCT, and reactions to that presentation on social media were a big part of the story. A number of other news tidbits also made waves on TCTMD this month, so I'll try to bring you up to speed on those briefly before I sign off. Let's jump in. The opening late-breaking presentation at TCT 2019 was also the one that created the biggest splash at this year's meeting. That was Twilight, presented by trial PI Roxana Maran of the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. Twilight picked up on a theme we've been seeing a lot of in recent studies, including a spate of post-hoc analyses from global leaders. Namely, is ditching aspirin a safe and effective way to get patients off of DAPT following PCI? Twilight tested a strategy of ticagrelor plus aspirin for three months, at which time patients were randomized to stay on DAPT or to continue on ticagrelor monotherapy for one year. Two-thirds of the patients in Twilight had ACS, while the remainder were stable CAD patients. It's important to note that STEMI patients, patients taking anticoagulation, and patients with a prior stroke were excluded in this trial. Out of more than 9,000 patients initially enrolled, 7,119 remained in the trial at three months and were randomized accordingly. As Miran showed at TCT, the primary endpoint of BARC, 2, 3, or 5 bleeding at one year occurred less often in the ticagrelor plus placebo arm than in the dual antiplatelet therapy arm. Importantly, there was no difference in the composite secondary endpoint of death, MI, or stroke, nor for MI, all-cause death, or definite, probable stent thrombosis alone, although Miran was careful to stress that the trial wasn't powered for those secondary endpoints. Find the slides, video, and full news coverage of Twilight on TCTMD. But for now, here's Miran in conversation with C. Michael Gibson of the Brigham and Women's Hospital, who was on the executive committee for Twilight and is senior author on the published paper, in the New England Journal of Medicine. The idea is that if, when you have a potent agent like ticagrelor, and we've only tested this with ticagrelor, it really should be tested with a now cheaper prasugrel, but for sure uh, in ticagrelor, um, we showed when in 7,000 patients that you could reduce bleeding significantly and not just small bleeds, large bleeds, and you can still preserve that ischemic benefit. You know, the, the rate of death MI 
CVA in those patients at one year was 3.9%. That's low. That's pretty low. That's because that potent agent was on board. Yes, there was a stress test, so the very sick mm-hmm. patients got out early on. But I think in those patients who tolerated three months of aspirin and ticagrelor, I don't know that we have a reason to continue dual therapy now after twilight. DAPT was also the focus of another late-breaker that broke into our top 10 list for October. This was Onyx 1, presented as a late-breaker at TCT by Stefan Windecker of the Swiss Cardiovascular Center in Bern. Onyx 1 looked at PCI patients at high risk for bleeding who were treated with a polymer-based drug-eluting stent combined with one month of dual antiplatelet therapy, as compared with patients treated with a polymer-free drug-coated stent combined with the same DAPT regimen. As you may recall, polymer-free stents were initially developed out of hopes that, without the polymer, the risk of stent thrombosis would be lower, thus allowing DAPT durations to be shortened. But this new data, combined with those of similar trials, seems to question whether going polymer-free is really necessary. In Onyx 1, for the primary composite safety endpoint of cardiac death, MI, and definite or probable stent thrombosis at one year, the Resolute Onyx Zoterolemus eluding stent was non-inferior to the drug-coated BioFreedom stent at roughly 17% in both groups. There were no differences between the stents for the combined secondary effectiveness endpoint of target lesion failure at one year. Event rates were driven by similar rates of target vessel MI in both groups. A couple other nuances in this study were raised by Windecker in his concluding remarks. Have a listen. Onyx-1 is a very contemporary uh, trial and uh, actually the first trial comparing a polymer-based drug-eluting stent versus a polymer-free drug-coated stent investigating one-month DAPT in a complex high-bleeding patient and lesion population. Among these patients treated with one-month DAPT after PCI, the Resolute Onyx was as safe and effective as BioFreedom, and Resolute Onyx had improved angiographic outcomes and greater device success post-PCI. So in conclusion, these data demonstrate that Resolute Onyx is safe and effective in complex high-bleeding risk patients who receive one-month DAPT. Quite a few of the trials highlighted in the late breakers at TCT this year were not so much late breakers so much as they were late follow-up of late breakers from prior meetings. In this category, we saw three-year results from COAPT and five-year results from both Excel and Partner 2A. These last two are worth a discussion because, as I alluded to earlier, they were presented both at TCT and then again at the EACTS meeting one week later. The Excel results seemed straightforward enough at TCT, so much so that I assigned our journalism fellow, Marcus Banks, to cover this presentation for TCTMD, and Marcus, I thought, did the topic justice. Of note, the paper was also published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Here's co-PI Greg Stone of the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai at TCT 2019 summing up the key findings from Excel at five years. So in conclusion, in the XL trial, treatment of patients with left main disease and visually assessed lower intermediate syntax scores with Zion stents resulted in similar rates of the clinically meaningful compositive outcome of death stroke or large MI at five years. The early benefits of PCI due to reduced periprocedural risk were attenuated by the greater number of events occurring during follow-up with cabbage, such that at five years, the cumulative mean time free from adverse events was similar with both treatments. 
PCI may thus be considered an acceptable revascularization modality for selected patients with left main disease, a decision which should be made after heart team discussion, taking into account each patient's individual risk factors and preferences. Fast forward one week to the EACS meeting, where David Taggart of the University of Oxford in England had a very different and explosive take on Excel. As Michael Reardon reported for TCTMD, Taggart took to the stage at EACS and announced that he had actually withdrawn his name from the Excel manuscript, calling it, quote, a disgrace. Here's Taggart walking his audience through his alternate interpretation of the Excel results at five years. I would give you a different interpretation of this trial in terms of clinical reality. If you look at panel A, this is death from any cause, you can see that there's a statistically significant survival benefit of cabbage at five years, and the crucial thing is it is accelerating in favour of cabbage. For stroke, no difference between PCI and cabbage. For myocardial infarction, again, an accelerating benefit of cabbage. And the only reason there's a difference in these results is that there was a change in the biochemical definition of myocardial infarction, which disfavored cabbage as a procedural event. But if you look at real myocardial infarction, that's the ones that occur 30 days after an operation, then you can see there's a strong benefit of cabbage, and the same for ischemia-driven revascularization. But I point to the conclusions of the authors of this paper. In patients with left main disease of lower intermediate anatomical complexity, there was no significant difference between PCI and cabbage with respect to the rate of composite outcome of death, stroke, or MI. I think this is a, these conclusions were at complete odds with the actual data presented in the paper, and having attempted to have this corrected but being unsuccessful, I withdrew my name. As you might imagine, this stark disagreement set the meeting ablaze, as Mike put it in his story, and had the same effect on Twitter. Mike managed to get reaction from both Dr. Taggart and Dr. Stone for his story. I'll let you read that in full on TCTMD. Now, Partner 2A was also presented at both TCT and EACTS. Todd Neal covered Partner 2A at TCT, and as his story notes, five-year follow-up of this randomized trial showed no difference in the risk of death or disabling stroke between patients with severe symptomatic aortic stenosis at intermediate surgical risk treated with TAVR versus surgery. That finding was consistent among patients treated via transfemoral access, but those whose procedures were done via transthoracic access had significantly worse outcomes compared with surgery. Valve-related rehospitalizations and reinterventions were also more frequent in the overall TAVR group. In another important finding, moderate to severe paravalvular regurgitation occurred at a higher rate in the TAVR group, and this was associated with a heightened risk of all-cause death. At both TCT and EACS, the long-term follow-up for Partner 2A was presented by Vinod Thorani of MedStar Heart and Vascular Institute in Washington, D.C., when Thorani took the stage at EACS, he did so immediately after David Taggart, and perhaps trying to lighten the tone, Thorani joked that he was a little nervous about his presentation and that he hadn't, quote, worn any armor. I watched both of these Partner 2A presentations. Both, I should mention, are archived online. What I noted was that the EACS presentation omitted a few slides related to functional class and quality of life that we saw at TCT, but it did have an additional slide, which showed the Kaplan-Meier curves for all-cause death over the course of the trial to date. 
And although the curves favored Taver early on, by five years, mortality was 46% for Taver and 42% for Saver, a non-significant difference. I caught up with Sarani by phone after EAX and asked him about the mortality slide. He told me he'd been specifically asked to include it in his EAX presentation, but that his conclusions at both meetings were exactly the same. He was also adamant that he had no concerns about Taver moving into younger or lower-risk patients based on this data, since the trial had used both an access method and technology that are no longer used today. Here's some of my conversation with Thurani. The message still is the same exact to me. The surgeons are spinning it differently. The cardiologists are spinning it differently. I'm kind of neutral because I do both. Surgeons are saying, oh, look, they die more. I'm like, no, they have more PBR for a valve type that we don't use anymore. And that's directly correlated to the higher mortality. You think that if the newer device takes care of the leaks, that you that's won't right. see that? The biggest issue, the, re- the mortality is driven by PBR and is driven by transapical. We no longer do transapicals, number one. Number two, PBR is taken care of by safety three. So the two points that made a valid analysis difference or a difference, whatever difference we saw, was because of that higher readmission, higher reintervention, all because of PBR. Of course, not all of our top stories in October stemmed from meetings. One of our biggest stories this month was by Laura McEwen, covering an analysis led by Fred Masudi of the University of Colorado in Aurora and published in JAMA Internal Medicine. This paper addressed the unintended consequences of a decade-old policy change by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services that reduced the payments for office-based non-invasive cardiac testing, such as stress tests and echocardiography. At the time, concerned that a nearly 60% increase in non-invasive cardiac tests that occurred between 1999 and 2005 signaled self-referral and overuse by clinicians' offices, CMS cut Medicare fee-for-service reimbursement for office settings from an average of $700 per test to $300. Payments for the same tests performed in hospital settings, however, remained relatively the same. Masudi and colleagues have looked at this issue before, but in their latest effort, they found that the payment ratio of hospital-based outpatient testing to provider-based office testing increased from 1.05 in 2005 to 2.32 in 2015. That increase was associated with the subsequent proportion of hospital-based testing in Medicare fee-for-service organizations, but not in a comparison group of three health maintenance organizations. Of the nearly 7 million non-invasive cardiac tests performed in the fee-for-service patients in 2015, 24% were done in hospitals rather than provider-based offices at an additional cost of $398 per test for a total excess annual cost of $661 million. That sum includes the additional CMS payments of $301 per test and out-of-pocket payments of $97 per test, which were shouldered by Medicare patients and totaled $161 million. As Masudi told Laura, the evidence acquired to date suggests that the fix put in place by the CMS appears to have backfired. Here's Masudi. When it comes to excessive payments, one person's excessive payments are another person's income. Uh, And as you can imagine, therefore, there's a fairly stiff uh, political debate going on around this issue where hospitals and health systems make the argument that, you know, it takes substantial money, it takes substantial financing to support the overhead of a a hospital-based facility, and therefore the, the testing costs more. 
which is an understandable perspective from their point of view, but from the point of view of the payer and the point of view of the patient, really no meaningful difference as to where the test is done as long as it's done, you know, with high quality and in a timely way with accurate results. You know, the patients in CMS really don't care much, I would assume, where it's performed. We are gearing up for a very busy November here at TCTMD. We have Laura McEwen heading out to the Viva meeting in Las Vegas early in the month, and Michael O'Reardon heading to London Valves. We'll also bring you some coverage of the VETH meeting taking place mid-month in New York City. The big one, of course, is the American Heart Association Scientific Sessions, because that's where we will finally get to see results of ischemia. This pricey, long-running NHLBI-sponsored trial is looking at whether patients with stable coronary disease and moderate to severe ischemia are best managed with optimal medical therapy or an invasive approach. Investigators are set to deliver the results on day one of the AHA meeting in Philadelphia on November 16th. I'll be there along with TCTMD reporters Yael Maxwell, Todd Neal, and Caitlin Cox. So I spent much of the last week working on a look-ahead for ischemia, given all of the controversy that has dogged this trial in recent years. I spoke to trial PI David Marin of Stanford University, who was kind enough to speak very cautiously about what he thinks the impact of this study will be. And I got some predictions and opinions from some other people worth listening to as well. I'll leave you here with a few words from John Spertus of St. Luke's Mid-America Heart Institute in Kansas City, who is scheduled to present the health quality outcomes for this trial as part of the ischemia session at AHA. We'll let Spertus have the last word here, plus give you a little bit of health status outcomes research humor. Look, if it shows improved survival or preventing heart attacks and improved quality of life, then we'll sort of keep doing what we're doing now. But if it doesn't show that, you know, there's not improved survival or, you know, preventing heart attack, and there's not improved quality of life, then I think we need to stop doing all these procedures. And so it really is important and really is contingent on what we find on these results, and it'll have an immediate impact. Uh, I mean, you know, immediate in healthcare terms, so that's within two to five years. <laughs> Again, if everything's positive, then they just keep doing what they're doing, but if, if it's not, then they'll probably really want to be thoughtful about which procedures they pay for to make sure the patients are benefiting. That is a wrap for the October edition of Heart Sounds. If you haven't done so already, I hope you'll go back and check out our coverage of TCT and EACS, as well as our daily news for the month. My ischemia story is still on the TCTMD homepage, and you can also find it and all of our other work on our new and improved TCTMD app. Please do keep in touch with me and all of the other TCTMD reporters as we head into this busy season of meetings. It is always great to get a heads up on important presentations or other news tips that I've missed in all the hurly-burly. Oh man, you know you've nailed the Halloween edition of Heart Sounds when you manage to work in a Shakespearean witch reference at the end. Thanks for tuning in. Love listening to Heart Sounds? Be sure to check out additional podcast series from TCTMD featuring Talking Points with Mike Gibson and Rock's Heart Radio with Dr. Roxana Moran. These episodes are available on SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes.